while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is Marcello Rolando, your host for the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. As you know, we try to have reasonable voices on radio since there are so many unreasonable voices in our world today, especially in politics. Today, we have a filmmaker, Rachel Mills. Hello, Rachel. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. How are you? I'm great. A&E Network is about to premiere a new original docu-series called The Killing Season. It will premiere on Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. And filmmakers Josh Zeman and Rachel Mills, who's with us today, delve into the unsolved Long Island serial killer case and others with the, with the help of what they call, well, what they are, amateur cyber sleuths. So, Rachel, um, we should also mention, I guess, executive producer of The Killing Season is the Academy Award-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. So, The Killing Season. Tell us, Rachel, tell us about the how you got involved with uh, Josh and, uh, and The Killing Josh, Season. Yes. Josh and I had worked on um, another kind of what we call backdoor pilot um, in the industry where... Mm-hmm. We got enough money to do a two-hour documentary um, that could have led to a series. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, that network, which was under the NBC umbrella, mm-hmm. uh, NBC Universal, which was this chiller network, just they, I don't think they could put more money into it. But we did really great. Um, and on Netflix, the show is called, the show I'm talking about is called uh, Killer Legends, oh. which is another active investigation into the world of true crime intersecting with urban legends. Mm. So really looking at um, certain urban legends through the lens of a particular crime, seeing if the legitimacy, if we can trace it back to one certain crime, you really can't. But more why do these urban legends, which are really folklore, continue Mm -hmm. um, in our society um, and why they exist and usually is to teach us some sort of lessons. So that was how I got uh, associated with Josh. That was about four years ago, maybe mm-hmm. three years ago, we did that project. And uh, Josh had been working on the side, filming a 
couple of interviews, early, early interviews four years ago on the killing season um, going out to Long Island. So yes. I'd heard whispers about it while we were in production for Killer Legend. And then, you know, he's, he's a very tenacious person and couldn't let that project go. Um, mm. So then it just was organic. We got off Killer Legends. We started working on a sizzle reel, a show reel to then um, present to production companies and to networks. We found, as you said, um, Alex in a, in a partner for this series, which was amazing. Um, mm. We couldn't have done any better than, than, than um, partnering up with Alex. And then, um, you know, when have a lot of meetings. Yes. <laughs> and uh, A&E, um, A&E bit. And mm. um, they're very, I mean, so just a little bit of background, this series is about unsolved serial homicides, mm-hmm. all involving sex workers. Yes. The sex workers is a little bit of a scary subject matter to get into. Um, a lot of people, they kind of shut down sometimes, a lot of blaming the victim in those kinds of crimes. So yes. Alex is really the one who um, told us, you know, lean into the pain and really embrace, you know, that the serial homicides in this country um, a lot of times are... Uh, do involve sex workers. Yes. Um, so once we embraced that, it kind of freed us. Um, and like you said, we start off in Long Island, but then we end up going across the country um, yes. so that we get a lot of different um, unsolved serial homicide cases. You, you know, and it's great because uh, from what I know from Josh and now I'm hearing from you, it's important that while your documentaries focus on some specific areas, that what you're really doing is educating us that this is a national issue. Would that be fair? That's right. Yeah, and and making us look at it. And I don't know if it's too much to say it's of epidemic proportions, uh, like opiates mm-hmm. and, and other things, bullying, but, uh, but certainly the sex workers are perhaps the most vulnerable or easy targets. Do you, do you agree? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, they're, they're, they're a population who um, are functioning in their line of work to mm-hmm. be off the grid, to evade law enforcement. So when, um, when you yourself are trying to evade law enforcement, you don't leave so much of a trace, a yes. digital trace, any kind of trace. You know, they're functioning in a cash society. They have burner cell phones. Um, they're functioning on um, Backpage and Craigslist. Um, which is something we definitely go into, which is the new phase of prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, so the serial killers go after those who most likely can't be connected to. I mean, that's just common sense. Yeah, <laughs> I serial guess. murder. Yes. You know, they're no longer going after the runaways and the, and the sorority girls or the hitchhikers. Mm. Um, you know, I have a cell phone. I probably checked into someplace on Facebook yes. or, you know, it, I, I can be traced back anywhere. Um, so... When people themselves are trying to evade law enforcement, um, unfortunately, you, you do fall yes. victim. You yes. can fall victim. Exactly. And you actually, if I can say, you bring up a very good point with um, bringing up the opioid epidemic, yes. which is tragic, and that is an epidemic, and that is allowing people who may not have ever thought about um, um, prostitution or making money in that way, um, you know, something happens, you get prescribed painkillers, and those are highly, highly, highly addictive. Mm. 
And once those aren't enough and you maybe can't get a prescription anymore or taking 10 pills isn't enough mm. and it's expensive, mm -hmm. you, you know, you turn to heroin um, because it's, it's cheaper and faster, mm. you know. Yes. So to, to support that habit, oftentimes they will prostitute themselves. Well, between that and the recession, I, I know I hear what you're saying, and I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, this, specifically, the killing season documents uh, the murder of 10 sex workers, but and we call them, or you call them, the missing missing. Can you explain that to mm. us? Sure. So the missing missing isn't, I mean, a lot of them can be sex workers. It can be anyone, mm. um, the missing missing. The missing missing is really, someone goes missing, you never know they're missing because no one's really looking for them. Yes. So we really don't know how many missing persons there are in the United States. Mm. Um, when it comes to um, vulnerable um, people, um, when it comes to the sex worker population, um, a lot of people, like we said, they live off the grid. Um, sometimes they move. Sometimes mm. they're, they're trying to get away from... They're pimps, possibly, um, or they're doing, there's, there's a well-known circuit, you know, you go from, like, New York, Philadelphia, down to Florida, you know, Oklahoma yes. City, so you are oftentimes moving around, and oftentimes, and, and police, I don't, in this series, we don't like to throw police under the, the bus, yes. necessarily, um, and a lot of people think that law enforcement agencies, police in general, don't really care about sex workers. Mm. And that probably is true in some departments, some individuals, but there is a shred of truth to say, you know, oftentimes these people go missing and they turn up. Yes. And, you know, for some law enforcement, maybe they're not looking so hard for these people because they've seen that happen so many times before. I'm not trying to condone that, mm -hmm. but um, it can make some sense. Mm. So... You know, going back to the missing, missing, it can really be anyone who isn't often checking in yes. with their relatives or their family. Maybe they've um, run off with a boyfriend or something like that. Mm -hmm. But these are these are people that we never knew were missing until their unfortunately their bodies were found. No. Well, then, a good subplot of our interview here is to teach everyone. Check in. I mean, wherever you are, uh, it's not going to hurt to check in and just let people know I'm okay, even if you don't say where you uh -huh. are. It's a world that we just don't know. I mean, most people are exposed to something like this. Well, if they watch documentaries, I guess that's the best um, and safest exposure and most educational and informative. But most people uh, watch TV and they see uh, these, there's so many uh, murder mysteries and thrillers and police shows on television. They drive me crazy. I go, isn't there anything else to make television about? But those shows are not, are more to entertain than to inform, and, and they make no pretense. So we get a kind of um, naive, dare I say, opinion of what crime is like on the streets, but it's a whole nother level of society that we who live in the glass houses just don't don't know about it. I, I don't think. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really great point, and um, something that I knew about but didn't really think so much about it. There's a few things when we talk about 
crime and the um, entertainment version of crime, mm. both in narrative storytelling and in um, nonfiction on yes. television and on the big screen, is that, one, there's this idea of the CSI, the CSI effect, Yes. Which is, you know, every episode, every crime is wrapped up in yes. 30 minutes to an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they have all this, everything moves super fast, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's DNA, and the DNA connects to someone because they're in some kind of system. Mm-hmm. That they have tons of, um, tons of different ways to solve the crime at their beck and call, essentially. Yes. And yeah. money never seems to be a problem either. Yes. Or bureaucracy, <laughs> right? Exactly. But very little yeah. of that is true. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and I, and I want to jump in in the next segment to your okay. um, web sleuths who mm. are of help. But before we do that, I, I want to go back to the police for a moment. We are asking a great deal of our police today, more than ever. Mm-hmm. They must be trained in how to recognize mental illnesses and mm. treat them differently. And also, they're still b- being paid the same. No matter how much more is required of them or trained, it's not like suddenly they're given these big budgets. So it, the police, for instance, um, I don't know. I mean, like I know from the IRS and other big government agencies that we think are so uh, including the State Department, we found out recently, so secure and so 21st century, but they're not. They're old computers that are much older than computers I have, and uh, and the police departments, I think, tell me what you think in all your research for the killing season, police departments aren't necessarily equipped with all of these the fastest, highest, most expensive 21st century devices, including computer tracking and all that. What What do you say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that is a very valid point. I think that most law enforcement agencies are overworked and understaffed. Yes. You know, it's, it's much, as well as, um, it's much sexier to go to the gun range on the weekend and, and shoot a gun yes. and not go through piles of paperwork, yes. um, which is something no one wants to. I'd rather be shooting a gun yes. than filling out paperwork, unfortunately. But I think there's a lot of systems in place that will eventually evolve and change. Um, look, we still have, a lot of places are still kind of a good old boy club. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with millennials starting to come into law enforcement, mm. and this is my own personal opinion, um, that social media, um, working with social media, working even just online. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of finger and pecking or pecking and whatever it is, you know, to type, um, which is totally understandable. But I think we'll slowly um, see law enforcement agencies being more open to utilizing new and different ways to source clues, use technology. Uh, I mean, you bring up Luxus, and we can talk about it later, but I think that Luxus um, are doing uh, a great service. Yes. Um, and going through those files and databases that, frankly, take hundreds of hours of mm-hmm. time to go through, missing persons databases, unidentified remains. So, you know, we'll get there. Um, but, yes, I agree that we, we, we have to ask a lot of our law enforcement agencies, and they are. They, 
there's so much red tape, it takes forever to get anything done, and it's definitely not like um, all those cop shows you see. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I know it's, it's uh, interesting as I think about it as we talk. I know a number of police uh, of various mm-hmm. ages. One I taught to say mommy many years ago, and he's um, he's has been a Capitol policeman. Uh, he has been uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, he is out Midwest now, still a policeman, good law officer. I I certainly wouldn't want to commit a crime in front of him because I've seen him, <laughs> uh, you know, in action. And I also know a policeman who's. I really can't say much about it, except that he is one of these new 21st century, very much a web uh, cyber sleuth, we'll talk about it in the mm-hmm. next segment, but very much a professional at it, who has a specific area of focus, and his ability and technology of tracking down, um, uh, let's say, people who commit sex crimes, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, is phenomenal. He uh, he has shared a bit of that um, as as a friend uh, because he and an ex- explanation of why he can't come on the radio because he can't say much. So I got a, a bit of that, but it's truly you are right. Things are moving in the correct direction, which is away from the fantasy of television and to the reality and information of docudramas like The Killing Season, which, by the way, takes viewers on a chilly uh, ride through the unknown and is a perfect example of impactful storytelling that drives the cultural conversation. So that was said by the head of programming at A&E, Elaine uh, Frontaine, yes. So it, it's, uh, I think, I know Josh said, and I think you said as well, it doesn't ha- it's not a... I don't know why people don't walk, watch documentaries. If you're going to, if you're going to use social media as a source of news, and you're going to use corporate media as a source of news, at the very least, you need to add documentaries as a source of news information. In my opinion, yeah. I don't know. You have any quick thoughts on that before we go to a break? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I think. Having a little bit of a renaissance of um, true crime documentary filmmaking, yes. both in docu-series and yet making a murder, you have Jinx, you even have Serial the podcast. Um, so no longer does it seem to be purely entertainment. It seems like people are actually trying to um, educate yes. as well, um, which is something I hope that that we do. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're not just looking at these crimes themselves, as I think you brought up a little bit earlier, we are trying to shed light on these bigger issues. Um, and I'm happy to go into those, or if you want to go to break, you can do that as well. Okay. Well, we're going to go to break and do uh, that as we come back. Again, everyone, I'm speaking to Rachel Mills. She is working with Joshua Zeman on The Killing Season. It's a new docudrama series um, that will be premiering on A&E Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. We will be right back with Rachel Mills. Stay with us. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Roger is a man of intelligence and verbal acuity. 
As a child, his sister called him Roger Dodger for his mental abilities and the sharp wit that consistently got him into and out of trouble. Roger's in advertising. He makes it his job to make people feel miserable about themselves, their cars, and the clothes they wear. No one buys feeling good about their current condition, he says. I make them realize how miserable they are. His girlfriend and boss is his mental equal, but their affair is now over on her terms. Not something that Roger is used to. Roger's conflicted 16-year-old nephew, Nick, a young Jesse Eisenberg, shows up, having heard that his uncle is a ladies' man. Eager to become a man, Nick has questions only a man can answer. Roger as mentor is scary to behold, as he takes Nick out on the town with moral turpitude as a goal and a black heart to share. Roger Dodger is a tightly woven social satire with intricate dialogue and cynical observation of the game between the sexes. Men will blanch and women will be furious with Roger, but this cautionary tale of a despicable man is rewarding as wry and honest observation. Indie Film Minute. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Find us on the web at IndieFilmMinute.com. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Show. My guest today is Rachel Mills, who is a filmmaker who is joined with uh, Josh Zaman and uh, are giving us a real, realistic, true, non-fictional look at current cases um, that have gone unsolved for the most part, in particular in the Killing Season, which is an upcoming docu drama um, docu drama series premiering on uh, A&E Network. Uh, Josh Zingman and Rachel Mills delve into the unsolved Long Island serial killer case and others with the help of amateur cyber sleuths. And we're going to talk about amateur cyber sleuths in a bit, but I just want to go back, as I warned Rachel, and ask her, because this is on Netflix now, and I have seen it and really enjoyed it, so I want to ask her a bit more about Killer legends as opposed to urban legends. Can you make that contrast for us? I'll just describe what it is. Um, Killer Legends was um, a featured documentary that delved into four different true crime cases Mm -hmm. across the country, ranging from 1940s to, I believe, gosh, I guess the 80s, 90s. Yes. Um, So we looked at four different crimes and that could be connected to some kind of urban legend that we all have heard about before. So, mm-hmm. for instance, there's an urban legend about babysitters getting killed. Yes. Um, the calls coming from inside the house, right? It's yes. a huge horror film trope um, mm-hmm. that we all know. So we wanted to know if there was any, and just using this as an example, there's three others. We wanted to know if there's any truth behind that. If, you know, we could find a case of a babysitter being killed in similar fashion, mm-hmm. or babysitters being killed in general, or, mm-hmm. or you know, a large amount, because it's, it's so prevalent in the kind of horror folklore. Yes. So it was really difficult to actually find a babysitter who had been murdered while babysitting. Mm-hmm. Um, we did find one in, it's been a while since I've talked about Killer Legends, actually, but um, I believe it was Columbus, Ohio, I want to say, mm. back in like 19... 19- 
find one. And we wanted to know, well, if they're not being killed in some kind of record number, why does that urban legend exist? Yes, yes. Yeah, we talked to we talked to folklore experts. We um, went and talked to Jeanette's old family. Um, you know, we kind of went through every avenue. And really, it, it comes out of women. I'm sure there's a lot of different ways you can explain it, but what resonated with me the most is back in um, 30s, 40s, women are going into the workforce, and I think that there is this subliminal or societal idea that, you know, women going back to work, they're mm. leaving their kids behind. There's no one watching the house so much. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, a subtle, you know, women going into the workforce, i.e. babysitting, perhaps. Yes. Um, and they're, they're not they're not taking responsibility for being the mother and the housewife and everything that you're supposed to be back then. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a subtle way of kind of tweaking that idea that, you know, what's going to happen to the home if, if the mom's going to the workforce. Yes. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's an, one of the ones we went into. I can briefly say another one is, um, you know, Lover's Lane. Going to Lover's Lane, you've always heard oh, of it. Oh, yes. Like, Yes. You know, the guy with a hook for a hand yes. to, go, um, to Lover's Lane. Um, and there was a rash of murders in Texarkana, Texas, mm. um, back in the 40s as well. And, um, you know, you, you talk to folklore experts, and that's all about premarital sex, right? Back in the 40s and 50s, we started getting into our cars and having a little bit more, um, uh, getting away from our families, you know, we're mm-hmm. going, we're, we're necking in, mm-hmm. in lover's wings, and um, don't do that because, you know, the boogeyman might come after sure. you, but that boogeyman is actually premarital sex. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh, gotcha. You know, it's, it, there are a lot of things, urban legends, there are a lot of, uh, 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 things that our parents told us that, uh, for uh-huh. instance, women wearing hats in church was always required. But the reason for it was because the bats were in the belfry, quite literally. <laughs> exactly. I heard that one. So you know, they're huh. just uh, you know, or don't uh, don't uh, chew chew with your mouth closed. Don't talk while you're mm-hmm. eating because it was impolite. Well, reality was, it, you could choke on your food. It's so mm-hmm. um, so. There are a lot of. Uh, a lot of urban legends and things we were told, and we don't know what's really behind them. But as you mentioned, the, there was the one babysitter that you found that was brutally murdered, and so it's good to pay attention to some legends anyway and what your parents uh-huh. said. But getting back to the killing season, I want to remind everyone um, it will premiere with back to back episodes. You know how we love to binge watch these days. Uh, Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. on the A&E Network. And it's about 10 dead sex workers discovered um, on a beach in Long Island. So what I think, at least with my experience with this, is that one of the new wrinkles, one of the new assets, if you will, uh, even though everybody uses social media in one way or another these days, but you actually have come together with amateur cyber sleuths. We should mention www.websleuths.com. Mm-hmm. And this was sort of a, a group of people maybe that were inspired by Tom, and I can't remember Tom's last name, Tom Hart. Uh, Tom Hargrove? Yes, yes. So tell us about that and how you and Josh 
and Tom sort of worked together for the facts, to collect the facts at least, included in The Killing Season. Oh, okay. Um, and I can. I'll back into. I'll back into Tom in a minute. Okay. But West is a really, really great community. Um, there's a lot of online sleuthing on the internet. Mm-hmm. Much of it, much of it devolves into name calling, finger pointing. Yes. And it can be really, really ugly. West is all just true crime, mm-hmm. and it's heavily moderated. So. You can't devolve into a conversation of, you know, name-calling there because Mm -hmm. you're going to keep off, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you're really there for the right reasons to uncover clues on certain cases across the country. It really started with um, the JonBenet Ramsey case. It was the first one that people really glommed on to, and there was so much speculation going on. Um, So that kind of really ignited the Webster's community. Um, what they do really well, and as we said uh, in the last portion of the podcast, is that police are understaffed and overworked. Yes. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of things that, you know, if they have hundreds of hours a day, they could go through every single lead. But they really should be out there talking to the people who are involved in the crime. They have access to those people, you know. So Webster's does a great job of sourcing clues and databases. Mm-hmm. For instance, missing persons databases, unidentified remains. Unfortunately, our databases in this country are a bit fractured. Which yes. I had no idea mm-hmm. going into this. I thought like every single homicide and every single missing person, yes. uh, every single crime was like entered into some kind of database on any level, state, county, federal. Yes. They all kind of went up into this cloud. Yes. And if you, you know, had a missing person in Kansas and that person popped up in New York, you know, a little red light. I'm simplifying it, obviously. Uh, A little red light would flash and that connection would be made. Unfortunately, that is absolutely not the case. It's absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, we uh, and you and we yeah. all think that uh, you know Big Brother and and FBI mm-hmm. and everyone is following us every moment with these cameras, but that isn't the case. And indeed, as you're saying, mm-hmm. m- most police forces are not coordinating this data. So what right. are we doing about it? What are the websleuths.com? How are they? Mm-hmm. Are we de- can we become data journalists? You can become a data journalist, and that that is a Tom Hargrove area. Tom Hargrove is an amazing um, data journalist himself. He's actually compiled the largest database of homicide in the country. He's one civilian person living in D.C. and has, through Freedom of Information Acts, through, in some cases, putting a lawsuit, trying to sue, um, I believe it was the the state of Illinois, um, mm-hmm. because the simple fact is that homicide data is not mandatory for police agencies uh-huh. to hand over, which mm-hmm. is shocking yes. to me. It's, it's absolutely voluntary. Mm. So the victim pieces through VICAP, um, which is a federal um, under, under the FBI, which is homicide data and, and violence crimes, is we don't even know where the holes are necessarily. Yes. It should be a clearinghouse, but it's not. So he's he's gone on. He's gone in, and as much data as in 
get from all these agencies, he's created, you can go to, I believe it's murderdata.org, mm. but it is a murder accountability project, is what they can do as well, and it's, we'll have information on Bluff Spoof once the show just does get started. So you, you yourself can go in, and let's say I live in Austin, Texas, I put, put in, you know, female strangulation between 85 and 90, mm-hmm. um, and can see all the, all the solved and unsolved essentially. Yes. So what he's done is he's able to, he always says that serial killers leave a statistical trace yes. behind. He is able to crunch numbers, do all that algorithm stuff that I have no idea how it works, mm-hmm. but, and actually see where there could be an undetected active serial killer. Yes. He, in, he can, any place. He connects the dots so that when you you see the similarities... Uh, that that could easily be missed, of course, especially if the different systems of different uh, law enforcement at different levels, different states, are not communicating with one another about this. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, it's easy to miss it. But what Tom has done is he's he's putting it, he's gathering this data. Listen to me sound like I know what I'm talking about. Gathering this data <laughs> into one place. And mm-hmm. is that one place going to be websleuths.com? Is that where he's, or you, you're going to... Um, the Murder Accountability Project, and ah, yes. that will give you access to this database. And there will be a link to it at websboost.com. What we're doing with the show is, since all these all these cases are unsolved, um, because we've had a relationship with Websboost, because yes. we got a lot of there are a lot of Websboost in our show, is that we want the conversation to continue after a viewer sees the show yes. and go to websboost.com and get involved to continue the investigation on their own as well. And I want to say that, uh, let me spell that, it's web sleuths, as in detectives, S-L-E-U-T-H-S dot com, web sleuths dot com. And again, the killing season, which premieres Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. on A&E, is an eight-episode series in a deep dive into a world of serial murder rarely seen before, especially on television and the TV shows we're used to watching. It goes beyond pop culture stereotypes that we're used to seeing to expose real-life American nightmare. And Josh Zeman has directed the series. Rachel, you're one of the executive producers, yes? That's correct. Yes. So uh, I just wanted to make certain we got that information in. But uh, continue with what you were telling us about really getting the data in one place. Where, because this isn't just for police to access, but this is for yeah. the general public. Tell us about that. I mean, that's got to be, for me, it's it's just a whole new world. And I think a, a good step, a major yeah, step. Yeah, yeah, Tom. Tom's done some incredible. Tom Harvard has done some incredible work, um, and we're able to. I'm, I'm not going to give it away. We're able to go to one of the cities he points us to, saying mm-hmm. there's a suspicious cluster. Check it out. You know, sometimes I think the police departments know about these clusters. They just haven't announced them publicly, which, in my opinion, is a little bit of. Um, well, it is a disservice to the community if you know there's an active, most likely an active serial killer mm, at large. Mm-hmm. That seems like a public health issue to me. Yes. And in some cases, they have no idea. See, there was a case in Gary, Indiana, a few years back, uh, and Hargrove saw the statistical 
yes. data yes. there popping up. He said there's a lot of red there. Um, and he said, I believe there's at least one active serial killer in Gary, Indiana. Wow. He calls them up, and they pretty much say, uh, no, thank you. We don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Um, and fast forward, I want to say, a year. And mm. there was, uh, um, they started finding, um, I believe it was bodies in, um, abandoned houses, which is often the case, especially um, in lower socioeconomic areas where there are tons of abandoned houses, which is definitely a public health problem. Yes. Um, Serial killers love to store bodies in abandoned houses. So that came out, and, uh, you know, you could could say they had egg on their face because of that. Yes. Um, But it is very amazing, and and it's really quite frustrating that a regular civilian is a person who's creating this database. Um, we are working with, just so let you know, we are working with, um, um, I believe he was the acting director for VICAP, um, Greg Cooper, who appears in our show as well. Uh-huh. Great guy, um, ex-profiler himself. And he runs the Cold Case Foundation, which with some other ex-profilers, um, very respected law men, um, was, I believe, the police chief of... Um, Salt Lake City for a while. Yes. I could be wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knows from the inside the limitations um, of VICAP, which is, just to let you know, that, that would be the database that all these homicides, all these violent, so it's a violent, um, I, for, I forget the acronym for it, but um, it's a violent criminal apprehension program. I believe that's what it, what it is. Uh-huh. So if everything was mandatory, it would be funneled into that database. Yes. And some are, but he believes that there needs to definitely be a change um, in the um, turning in homicide data. Yes. And um, he believes it should be federally mandated. Yes. I couldn't agree more, and I was as shocked uh, to hear that it isn't as you were. Uh, I just don't... Well, I do understand why. I do, because I I know a lot of, uh, as I said, different states and, and different municipalities and how things are handled. But we have to get past that, because for one thing, with the 21st century and all our new devices, everyday citizens can make a difference, I mean, in so many mm-hmm. ways than they could before. I mean, sending an email uh, to your congressman isn't as powerful as walking into his office, but getting online and and websites like websleuths.com, of course, watching the killing season because uh, this production at A&E Network uh, by Jigsaw Productions and Gigantic Pictures, you know, uh, is is going to give you information. And as um, Rachel has been telling us today, we are moving in the correct direction so that this can all come to one website on a location on the internet so that everyone can be a part of catching can end the killing season how's that what do you think rachel um i you know our our initial part in this whole series was never to necessarily catch a killer Uh because that's beyond us essentially Mm -hmm. but it was to bring light to these cases and to show what we can do um you know there's just for instance in the long island case there's still five unidentified bodies out there Mm. um you know if and that's one thing bloodsmith is very very good at is identifying um unidentified people the person we had a person carl k is a bloodsmith on our on our series, mm-hmm. and I believe he's, he's ID'd four 
four or five Jane and John Doe uh, wow. remains. And the thing is, is that there's so much information in a person. Mm-hmm. You know, you can track what the narrative was before they, they went missing. Their clothes can be identifiable. You can treat, you know, that that's one of the biggest things I think could be a break in the Long Island case mm. um, is identifying one of these missing. What, I'm sorry, identifying one of the unidentified remains. Yes. Wow. Uh, it, it's just it's just so fascinating just thinking about it. Uh, everyone, again, remember, uh, it's an eight-episode series. It is premiering um, on the A&E Network, and that will be Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. It has back-to-back episodes, so you can binge watch and watch it again. I, I think uh, I can't stress enough that it it's realistic Time sensitive, I would dare say, information. Mm-hmm. So we know it's cold water in your face. I know that's not always a pleasant thing, but knowledge is power, as they say. I hate to end on a cliche, so don't let me. Mm-hmm. Rachel Mills, my guest, tell us how we can um, can reach you guys, Josh and you and uh, Alex. Uh, how do we reach out and be supportive beyond, or at least with um, uh, WebSleuths.com, but beyond sure. that? Definitely be on WebSleuths.com um, once the series um, begins. I'm, mm-hmm. I've been on there. You can see my posts on there. Okay. Um, we'll be having radio shows as well. With WebSleuths has their own radio show, so we'll be doing that. Uh-huh. You can find me at Mills Rachel on Twitter at Mills Rachel. If you want to follow me, I do not great on social media. Um, but we really do want to bring uh, the conversation into living rooms of America and continue that conversation throughout the series because. Some of these cases are cold. Um, someone may want to talk. There might be, you know, someone can become a web sleuther and help yes. with this investigation. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, then. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Rachel Mills of The Killing Season, about to premiere Saturday, November 12th at 9 p.m. on A&E Network. We so appreciate you being on the show and wish you all the best, you and Josh Demon, and all associated with this work. Thank you so much, Gang Rachel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye now. All right. Take care. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. When you enter the world of the way, you'll feel it right away. Schmaltz. But even late on thick, schmaltz can have its own reward. The Way is about a father-son relationship. It was written and directed by Emilio Estevez and stars his father, Martin Sheen, as Tom Avery. As the film opens, Tom's son has been killed in a climbing accident in the Pyrenees while pursuing spiritual connection along the 500-mile trek known as the Camino de Santiago. Realizing he may not have given his son all that a father could, Tom decides to complete his son's journey. Carrying his son's ashes, he sets out to complete the Camino himself. This may all appear to be an ideal setup for maudlin manipulation, yet why does this film ultimately work so well? Because it explores the yearning common to us all, the need for a meaningful connection with the world around us, both spiritually and physically. Tom sets out on his journey planning to keep to himself, but a community forms around him, and the connections add warmth and meaning to all of their lives. 
instinctively, we relate. So plow onward along the way, either ignoring or delighting in the melodrama. The joy is in the quest. The way. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Nasty Woman, Bad Hombres, Gettysburg. Too often since Lincoln's Gettysburg Address extended our Declaration of Independence, healing a nation with the unity of emancipation, and conservative arrogance denied progressive scientific invention to save President James Garfield, greatness and exceptionalism are roads not taken by Republican leadership, and arguably Teddy Roosevelt's protecting the environment while his square deal busted the vampires of corporate trusts was the last time Republicans put American progress first. America's greatness is inconsistent victories mingled with defeats. Throughout our national journey, we've been spirited by the guidance of nasty women, bad hombres, and sometimes being just plain lucky. So in 2016, shall we gather at the trough of bigots, braggots, and bullies, and vote to promote the unseen puppeteers of the under-informed, choosing rupture while claiming rapture? Will we succumb to the rigged performance of a GOP ego-inflated puppet into a house-divided middle class? Deny the food desert less fortunate nutrition? Trade in our souls after reneging on our stewardship of earth and all life upon it? Or simply grope our way forward to prove we've still got it? People who ignore flashing red school bus lights cheat on their taxes, use K-street bagmen to rent politicians, or dupe the gullible with phony higher education institutions, generally enable a society none of us deserve. Honestly, hasn't America's better half been forced repeatedly to endure a corporate ladder replete with the mindset of a mythical locker room? Aren't Native Americans and many other people of color still expected to bear the brunt of rigid conservatism propagated on both Wall and Main Streets with fracking, voter ID laws, and inadequate schools perpetuating an inequitable future? Perhaps on Tuesday, November 8, 2016, most of us will find the crumbs left behind for our return to civility and unity, for as a people, most Americans remain good Samaritans. But what about the residents at the villages who, in 2012, cheered Paul Ryan with his mother a prop at his side when he assured them their Social Security and Medicare would be spared at the expense of future generations, presumably filled with the me-first survival instincts of a J. Bruce Ismay, the villages residents overlooked, the next generations are their children and grandchildren. After supreme 2000 infighting between U.S. and Florida Supreme Courts, wouldn't it be imprudent in an age of Citizens United financial stimulus? Senate's refusal to confirm Merrick Garland. Successful Russian hacks aided and abetted by Assange's WikiLeaks and perhaps a naive loose-lipped sink ship's Edward Snowden. 
with devices of every screen size paused over huge swaths of the United States, and pleas from a presidential nominee for international intervention in our electoral process to further delay admitting the real possibility of a trumped rig bankrupting democratic thought in our American Republic? Arguably, our greatest obstacle to greatness in 2016 is our failure to accept that Donald Trump didn't come out of thin air. He's simply the unvarnished malignancy that has been systemic to conservative state and federal leadership since Richard Nixon, trickle-down economics, the Tea Party, and Dick Cheney's So. We live in an age of gigantic mergers, diminishing glaciers, shifting weather extremes, and increasingly powerful computer technology that can snatch paperless ballots out of the heavens and toss them into the hell of low voter turnout, hyped media bias, and the stuff of cokeheads' misinformation snuff. So if we are to maintain the best that is in us, we may need to reevaluate the fear anger, hate, and, yes, ignorance, that has tampered with and tempered our tempo, though not yet terminating it, with violence, malice aforethought, and the lies we tell ourselves. Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.